Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we're going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. Yup, yup, the old man muttered to himself as he hobbled into the living room. He plopped down in his wife's rocking chair next to the side table on which a landline trilled its shrill melody. Should have known he'd be calling, the man chided himself. He lifted the phone to his ear. Jolly, a grouchy man on the other end asked. Yeah, Benny, I'm sorry, I should have called. You sent your wife over here? Benny asked. She does what she wants, Benny. You know that good as anyone. But she's supposed to be here? Benny's humorless voice wiped the faint grin from Daryl Jolly's face. Yes, sir, she's returning your power sander, he said. I don't see a sander, Jolly. Daryl thought for a moment, then asked, Does she have her purse on her? Benny said, She does. Well, that little sander should fit in there, shouldn't it? Daryl asked. He heard Benny tapping a window on the other end of the line. He must have put his hand over the receiver, because his voice sounded muffled when he yelled through the glass. Take it out and show me. Hey, Benny, calm down. Don't give my poor wife a heart attack. Benny sniffed into the phone and said, She's got it. Sorry about this, Jolly. Sure you understand. Of course I do, Benny. I'll remember to call ahead next time, all right? Have yourself a good afternoon, Jolly, Benny said. Sure thing. You treat my wife well now, will ya? The call disconnected. Daryl sighed. He slumped down in the chair into a position he wasn't fully sure he could retrieve himself from. Cassie, you darn fool, he muttered. I bet you went through the woods again. Old Benny sounded more anxious than usual. As if his wife could hear him, he said, Best not do that again, honey. With great effort, he hoisted himself from the rocker and walked into the kitchen to pour himself a glass of sun tea and watch for Cassandra's return. He turned a chair to face the great window in their dining room. The forest filled most of the view, expanding to either side like a great wall through which he had no desire to pass. A portion of the forest crept into his property line, yet he dared not even enter those trees. Not unless he had to. He knew the forest was rich with life, but death also roamed within. Cassandra did not return through the woods. She must have come back along the road, because Daryl did not see her approach the house. His first indicator of her return was the sound of her unlocking the front door. That you, Cassie? He called into the living room. Yes, dear, Cassandra replied. I gave him back the sander. Boy, was he on edge today. That man can wind himself up tighter than a snake. 
Did you go through the woods? Daryl asked. Only the shortcut around Esther's place. I know you don't like it, but it saves time. I don't like it, no, but it's Benny I'm worried about. He gets nervous when he sees you walking out there. Well, have either of you seen it lately? Cassandra asked. She came into the kitchen, it seemed, just to stare into Daryl's green eyes with her icy blue ones. Daryl shook his head, casting his gaze away in defeat. It only makes him more anxious. You know that. It's the suspense. Makes you wonder when it's coming back. Have you ever considered it might not be around anymore? Cassandra asked. No. Daryl scoffed as if this was the most ridiculous thing he had ever heard. That would be a dangerous assumption to make. Is that what you think? Don't you remember the last time somebody let their guard down? Cassandra shot him a furious glare. Of course she remembered. Of course it still haunted her. They had once had another neighbor to the north, Esther. She was still alive somewhere, but her house now stood empty at the forest's edge, her property so overgrown you couldn't distinguish its border. No one ever went to Esther's house. The pitiful shame of such a beautiful home sitting empty was not lost on the jollies, but the house stood empty for good reason. Its emptiness was how Daryl, Cassandra, and Benny knew Esther was still alive. As long as she owned and controlled that house, nobody would be moving in. Esther had lived alone after her kids flew the coop. Their father had died valiantly fighting forest fires before they even graduated high school. Esther had faced life without her husband, likely in the same manner he had faced his own fate, with stoic bravery and resolve, utterly fearless. She had also served as a sentry of the forest. She would call her neighbors on either side whenever a suspicious-looking animal peered its head from between the trees. She had helped them build traps and shared books or periodicals she found which might relate to their shrouded enemy. Esther had been a true warrior. However, no amount of bravery, fearlessness, or tenacity could prepare her for what would come. Her son and daughter-in-law were in a life-altering crash with a semi-truck on the highway. Miraculously, rescuers pulled both of their children from the wreck unscathed. The parents survived their critical injuries after a harrowing night of surgeries, but both had months of recovery ahead. They would be in and out of the hospital constantly, and overseeing their young children was out of the question. Aria was nine at the time, and Ike was only six. Aria and Ike moved in with Esther until their parents were capable enough to run the home again. That was the plan, anyway. When Esther had agreed to take them, she didn't realize Aria's dog Aslan would be coming along. Aslan, named after C.S. Lewis's iconic god lion, was a loyal golden retriever who stuck by Aria's side anywhere she went. He terrified Esther because she didn't know how to read a dog. She couldn't read his eyes well enough to know if he was really in there. The dog, though friendly and sweet, was a vulnerability Esther had not expected nor prepared for. She told young Arya to keep a close eye on Aslan and to never let him into the woods. Why? Arya had asked. Esther told her, Forests are dangerous places, this one in particular. If your dog goes in there, he may never come out again. None of you, and that includes Aslan, are to go near the forest for any reason. Within the first week of the children's stay, Esther's only rule was broken. Arya had tied Aslan up in the yard with the tether she had brought. 
She was sketching him in her notebook, as she often did when he was outside, his golden fur blowing in silky waves down his body. Aslan himself patrolled the grounds, sniffing every blade of grass, each dandelion, when suddenly his head shot up and his body aligned like an arrow pointed at the forest. A defensive growl rumbled in his throat, causing Arya to look up from her drawing. No sooner had she asked, What is it, boy? Then she saw the possum. She had never seen such a creature, and in her initial reaction, wondered how a rat and a pig created an offspring together. The possum froze but did not play dead as they are apt to do. One of its oddly thoughtful eyes studied Aslan, then wandered to Arya. Its gaze upon her felt disgusting. Arya shivered and sprouted goosebumps as if the thing had licked her rather than simply glanced her way. Come on, Aslan, she said, standing to take him inside. Aslan remained focused on the possum like a missile ready to launch. When Arya touched him, he jerked, yanking his tether partially out of the ground. Aslan, Arya scolded. She felt under his collar for the tether's clasp, but found it so taut she was afraid to disconnect it, lest he bolt. She tugged at his collar in an effort to pull him back, but felt utterly helpless against his strength. This was the first time her good dog had ever refused to cooperate with her. It scared her as much as the strange animal at the edge of the woods. The possum hissed aggressively. Arya turned to see it standing on both legs with its front paws raised by its head. Arya, a city girl of only nine years old, could not have known how bizarre this behavior was. Possums are, by nature, nocturnal creatures, and they are by no means brave. As mentioned, their single defense is to play dead and hope whatever is hunting them leaves them alone. Even unaware of these facts, Arya still desperately wanted to be away from the creature. Aslan, come on, she grunted as she leaned all her weight against his pulling. Being tugged in two directions caused Aslan's collar to snap. Before Arya realized what had happened, the dog ripped across the yard like a bullet. His shimmering body seemed to float above his pumping legs. The possum dropped and scurried into the underbrush. Aslan followed. Arya looked nervously up at the house, wondering if her grandmother had seen Aslan go into the woods. She had specifically warned Arya not to let him do that. She was too afraid to call his name, lest her grandmother hear her and learn that she had been disobeyed. It isn't fair, Arya thought. I didn't mean to let him go. She sat in the grass and cried as the splashing sounds of Aslan crashing through the leaves faded away. But Aslan was a good dog. He returned not five minutes later, wearing his giant grin and trotting like a show pony. Arya met him halfway across the yard and threw her arms around him, then ushered him into the house to put on his spare collar. When they were inside, Aslan sidled up to Ike, who was sitting at the dining room table, coloring. Hey, boy, he said, patting the dog's head. Aslan stayed at Ike's side even after Arya called him to her room. He wouldn't listen. She chided him as she brought the collar out and put it on. A new collar? Esther asked, walking into the dining room with rubber gloves and a sponge. Arya lied. I like to mix it up sometimes. That night, Aslan left Arya's room to sleep in Ike's. Arya didn't notice he was gone until the next morning. She was surprised when Ike came out of his bedroom for breakfast with Aslan in tow. Your dog wouldn't let me sleep, he said groggily. Why? Arya asked, 
I don't know. I think he was staring at me all night. Arya shook her head. That doesn't sound like him. Maybe you were dreaming. I wasn't even sleeping, Ike rebutted. They left the subject alone as they ate the oatmeal and yogurt Esther had prepared for them. Aslan's behavior settled to normal over the next two days, with the exception being he continued to go to Ike's room at night. His entire life he had slept with Arya. She wanted to talk to her granny about it, but she was afraid Esther might discover Aslan had gone into the woods if she brought it up. His foray into the forest was the only abnormal event to occur before the behavioral shift. On the third night, Aslan left Arya's room after she had fallen asleep. He nudged Ike's door open, then stood in the doorway, perfectly still, watching the boy. Without provocation, the dog issued a bark so faint it might have been called a whisper. The sound broke enough to wake little Ike while his sister and granny slept soundly. Aslan? Ike asked, rubbing his eyes. The dog only waited in the doorway with expectant patience. You need to go out? Ike asked. Aslan tilted his head. I'll get Arya, Ike said. He lifted his small covers and swung his short legs out from beneath him. His feet couldn't quite touch the floor yet. He slid down the side of the bed clumsily, padded over to the door, and slipped past Aslan. He took no more than three tiptoe steps toward Arya's room before Aslan growled and nipped at his hand. It wasn't a bite, more of a kiss, but it frightened Ike. Aslan had never lashed out in any manner before. Is something wrong? Ike asked, stooping to meet Aslan's eyes. The dog jerked its head away and sidled toward the dining room. Ike whispered, What are you doing, boy? Aslan ran sideways toward the back door, smiling at Ike all the way. Okay, okay. Ike said as he caught up and took hold of Aslan's collar. Esther had hammered a nail into the wall just outside the back door on which to hang the end of Aslan's tether. Since he was normally an obedient dog, they could usually hold him back while they cracked the door open and grabbed the end of the tether off the wall. On this night, when Ike slid the door open, Aslan bolted. Ike's fingers burned as Aslan's synthetic collar slipped through them. He looked up just in time to see the dog's tail vanish into the black. Aslan, he whispered into the dark. Aslan! But the usually responsive dog did not return or reply. Ike looked nervously back toward the bedrooms. If he lost the dog, even for a single night, his sister would never trust him again. She might not even love him anymore. And his granny? She would just be mad. So mad that he and the dog which she openly disliked had caused trouble and upset his sister. He had to make Aslan come back. Ike took his granny's flashlight and stepped onto the back deck. The breath of the forest rushed past as the door closed behind him. Ike swung the flashlight's beam from left to right but saw no sign of his sister's beloved dog. He leapt over the steps so as not to make them creak and landed like a deflighting bird in the grass and clover. A few steps away from the house, he called Aslan's name again, louder. Aslan's muffled and distant bark resonated through the trees. With immense hesitation and immeasurable terror, outweighed only by the dread of admitting his mistake to Arya, Ike approached the looming forest. He stumbled over an exposed root of an oak tree and tripped up to the tree line he had been so strictly forbidden to cross. Only his flashlight brought any comfort in the gloomy woods which blanketed across the sky. Aslan, 
he called through the trees. Again, he heard a distant and playful wolf. Come here, boy. The dog responded again, this time in an excited tone which seemed to implore Ike to come. Without a thought to how easily a young child such as himself could become lost in the woods, wasn't that the very moral spirit of the many fairy tales he had been read throughout his short life? Ike journeyed toward the pet. He came to a wide tree on which he leaned both for rest and security. A great horned owl sped by overhead, hooting furiously as it beat its wings. The owl swooped below branches until it was out of sight. With his small, wavering voice, Ike cried for Aslan once more. The dog's reply came from behind the very tree on which Ike was resting. I'm here, boy, Ike exclaimed as he ran around the rough trunk. His eyes scanned the ground for protruding roots so as not to trip over another. When he had traced a semicircle around the great tree, his light revealed a terrible creature. At the first glimpse of its spindly fingers in the flashlight's aperture, Ike stopped cold and choked on his own breath, wanting to scream but finding himself unable to, as if in a nightmare. And perhaps he was. Or rather, he had discovered one of the evils from which our nightmares attempt to warn us. The monster shared a similar size and stature to the golden retriever Aslan, but bore no further resemblance. Its head was like a human's, only where the eyes should have been, there were only bulbous voids of blackness, which glowed when Ike's beam shone directly into them, but swallowed all other light. Its nose was that of a rotted corpse, hollowed out and bisected by thin, dangling cartilage. It had no lips and wore a Chelsea grin, a toothy smile running from ear to ear. Mangy black hair dangled in thin strands from its pale scalp. The rest of the creature's form was sunken and emaciated. The general structure of its bones was human, but it appeared content to walk on four legs instead of two. Ike broke from his momentary stupor and backed away, turning sideways simultaneously in preparation to run in the direction in which he assumed he had come. But he forgot, in his terror, the roots. Once more his small foot caught on one, and he fell painfully to the earth. As he scrambled to his hands and knees, a powerful hand, ice cold, impacted his back and forced him into the dirt. Ike screamed for Aslan, desperately bidding the dog to come save him, but the remains of Aslan's body lay somewhere deeper in the forest, already as cold as the hand which now held Ike down. Esther called the deputies the next morning when she and Arya failed to locate either Ike or Aslan. Esther feared the worst, the very worst, a possibility so grim yet impossible to share with the deputies due to its fantastically macabre nature. She sent Arya with the deputy to be delivered back to her parents until another arrangement could be made, and not an hour too soon. Arya had not even reached her destination when Ike's body was discovered in the woods. Something had consumed his eyes, tongue, and heart. It had cracked open his skull and eaten his brain. It had taken those organs which defined Ike's being, his very essence, and left the rest to rot. Esther abandoned her longtime home after that. She maintained ownership of the house and land, forbidding anyone else to go there with the exception of her neighbors Daryl and Cassandra Jolly and Benny McCaffrey. To them, she left keys and granted permission to visit her property, if doing so was necessary for the protection and preservation of their own. 
she understood that her absence left a hole in the guard, the Watchers of the Wood. Benny called Daryl again two days later. Jolly, he growled upon Daryl's answer. Benny, what's new? Daryl asked. I've got something to show you. Got a minute to stop over? Daryl said, let me check my schedule, and laughed. Benny did not share in the humor. Come quick, and for God's sake, do not follow your wife's path. Stay out of those damn woods on your way. Daryl said, of course, dropping all guys of humor. I'll be there in 20 minutes. Benny repeated, 20 minutes, stay out of the woods. Daryl told Cassandra he was going to Benny's, and she asked to come with. Daryl told her she hadn't been invited, and, with Benny's sour disposition toward her recent behavior, it might be unwise for her to show up unannounced. Cassandra pointed out that Benny might be put more at ease by the two of them coming together. It can pretend to be one of us, but not both, she said. Daryl told her to get her shoes. Benny was waiting for them on his porch when they circled the forest, steering well clear of the trees grasping branches. Daryl immediately saw the consternation Cassandra's presence had set upon their neighbor. I thought it'd be just you, he called across his yard as they approached. Cassie made a good point, Daryl said. He allowed Cassandra to explain her reasoning, and to both of their surprise, Benny smiled. Come in, both of you. Cassandra, it's probably good that you're here, now that I think of it. What I've got inside might convince you to stay away from that damn shortcut you love so much. Benny led them into his den, where he had an old but functional laptop propped open on a writing desk. You remember those cameras we installed, don't you? He asked Daryl. The couple nodded. Daryl had risked a foray into the forest with Benny to help him install four trail cameras about a year ago. They had strategically placed them at complementary angles within the first hundred feet of trees. Cassandra had aided Benny in setting up the wireless connection to his laptop so he could download and review the camera's footage without having to return to the woods. I've been checking them daily since we put them in, Benny said. Most days they get triggered by birds and squirrels, but last night... Benny trailed off as he queued up a video file with a generic, date-stamped name. The video opened in a new window, and Benny pressed the spacebar to play it. Immediately, a deer-colored lime green by the night vision lens leapt onto the screen. It pounced from somewhere off-camera, then stood statuesque, facing slightly away. It appeared to be listening intently. Benny's camera did not record audio, so it was impossible to tell what the animal might be hearing. Benny backed the video up and paused it after the first second. Do you see it? he asked. Daryl and Cassandra leaned in until their faces were nearly touching. Neither of them saw anything strange, though. Benny said, No, look at the angle again. He replayed the handful of frames in which the deer came into the camera's view. It looked like perhaps it had jumped over something, a bush or a fallen tree, in order to land where it had. When its front legs connected with the ground, its hind legs were still higher than its head. It jumped out of a tree, Benny said with mild consternation. Don't be silly, scolded Cassandra. I've seen those things jump fences before. It probably jumped over a... Listen to me, Benny cut in. I know where this camera is. Daryl, do you remember? You helped me install it. It's mounted to the trunk of a tree, and that thing jumped straight over it. Well, Benny, I don't know. Oh, you too. Benny slammed the laptop shut and stood up faster than he had in a decade, fueled by frustrated rage. 
I'm not surprised that you doubt Cassandra. You wouldn't go gallivanting through the woods if you truly believed in what's lurking there. Daryl hovered a hand in front of Cassandra and said, Benny, that's not fair. But you... Benny shoved an arthritic finger into Daryl's sunken chest. If I show you some evidence that it's coming near our homes again, I expect you to react appropriately. Where are your guns, Jolly? Still locked up in your safe? What, do you got kids running about that I haven't seen? Who are you protecting? Because it certainly ain't yourselves. Get those damn things out, oil them up and keep them loaded, because this thing is coming back if it ain't here already. Could be sitting outside listening to us right now. The Jollies stood silent with steady blank expressions. Outside, a single raven cawed raucously from the woods. No one said it, but all three of them wondered, if only for a moment, if that which made the sound was truly a raven or any kind of bird at all. My guns are ready, Daryl said calmly, and I appreciate you trying to warn us, Benny. I do. I don't know where that deer jumped from, but you're right. It's good to be on alert these days. It jumped out of a tree because it's not really a deer, Benny doubled down. Now, can I get you two coffees or do you have somewhere important to be? After a considerably friendlier conversation over mugs of steaming coffee, the Jollies parted ways with Benny to return home. The subject of their tormentor always soured the mood, but with that aside, they were all friends. Much like the effects of politics and religion on a conversation, the subject of a shapeshifter had a tendency to drive a wedge between them when it should tie them together. Before the Jollies left Benny for the evening, Daryl suggested he email any further videos of that deer to him. He said that, even though he wasn't convinced yet, it would be smart to keep an eye on the animal. The Jollies ate a small dinner when they got home from Benny's house. They retreated to the den to read until dark. Without provocation, Daryl suddenly slammed the biography of some war general shut. Cassandra's eyes instinctively raised from the pages of her novel to meet her husband's. He looked at her with such great sadness as to instill the same feeling in her. Prompted by nothing but the welling ardor in Daryl's glimmering eyes, she felt her throat swelling as tears pressed delicately from within. Please talk to me, she whispered. What's bothering you? Why do you do it, Cassie? Daryl asked solemnly. I'm not upset at you, not in the angry way. I just want to know why. Why do you go into the forest? Cassandra immediately became defensive, saying, It's only a little way, but Daryl cut her off. Before, you wouldn't have gone within a hundred feet of that forsaken place, but now you say, It's only a little way in as if taking your shortcut doesn't risk all of our lives. Yours, mine, Benny's. Cassie, if I ever hear your voice calling to me from those woods, even if I was standing over your cold, dead body, I would still follow your voice. I, I... And then he did cry. Cassandra tried to hold back, but found the swelling river of tears too turbulent for her dam. If I let myself be afraid, she said, sniffling. Then I'm admitting to myself what might be out there. Damn it, Cassie, we know what's out there, Daryl cried, not in anger, but a passionate longing for his wife to understand how she tormented him. This outburst sent Cassandra into fitful sobs. Daryl made to speak, to offer some small comfort, but she waved a hand to silence him and raised a finger, signaling him to wait. Once she could control her voice, she spoke again. 
if I admit what's in the forest, and yes, love, I do know deep down, then I have to accept what happened to... what happened to that poor child. And Daryl, I can't. Daryl's tears, large and rare, dripped from his stoic face as he watched the beloved face across from him writhe in bitter anguish. Cassandra said, All these years we've waited and watched, and for what? When it really mattered, we weren't there to save him. And ever since, I've just felt so hopeless and lonely, Daryl. I felt so alone. Daryl swallowed and said, But I'm here. I've always been here. Cassandra looked away, unsure of how to make her husband understand. He was right. He had been there. He had been so present and strong, a steadfast support. A pillar, but like one of the sturdy pillars surrounding the crumbling Parthenon. His personal strength could do nothing to save the ruin of their shared life. Cassandra did not hold this against him. How could she? Yet she sometimes resented his strength and how it had kept them from running far away from their plot of land and the woods which bordered it. Why did he have to take it on himself to guard against the evil in the forest and, by association, charge her with the same burden? Daryl, she said, still not looking at him. Do you ever think it might be time to pass the torch to someone else? Maybe someone with the energy to end this instead of constantly living in this... this... Hell, Daryl finished for her. I know it's hell, Cassie. She finally looked back to him, saw the resolve which had replaced the sorrow in his eyes, and pressed no further. The phone rang shortly after sunrise. Daryl answered. Benny? he asked. He didn't know who else it would be. Jolly, I hope I'm not waking you, but this can't wait. It's out there, and it's close. Do you see it? Daryl asked, dropping his voice low as if the monster might hear him. Not with my own eyes, no, Benny said. But I'm checking the cameras right now. The same one I showed you yesterday caught something again. What is it this time? Daryl asked. A deer again but I've never seen it do this before. I don't want you going out, so I'll try to email this to you. Sure I shouldn't just come by, Benny? No, no, stay inside. You'll get the video soon. I'll check the rest and see if any other cameras caught it. Maybe we can get an idea for where it went. The men discussed their respective fortifications while Daryl awaited the emailed video. His own computer dinged in the den, interrupting their conversation. With Benny still on the line, Daryl opened the video file. It started, similarly to the previous one, with the deer jumping into the picture. This time it jumped from in front of the camera, though, and Daryl could clearly see it had leapt over an angled log. Okay, I see it's a deer, he said into the phone. Just keep watching, Benny ordered. The deer's head jerked toward the camera. It turned its eyes to the lens, locking on. The animal crept toward the camera, keeping its eyes trained directly into the lens. They weren't looking at the camera in general, but the lens specifically. Daryl felt as if somehow it was looking through time and seeing him sitting in front of his computer in the present. Well, that's a little creepy, he admitted. Benny didn't respond. The deer's nose came within a foot of the camera, and yet still its eyes were focused. They didn't have the vacant innocence of a normal deer's eyes, but a furious gravity. 
they were the eyes of fate. The deer tilted its head downward so it was no longer looking down its nose to see the lens. And so posed, it remained perfectly still until the video ended. That's all it caught? Daryl asked. The cameras record motion, Benny answered. It stayed still so long the camera stopped detecting it. The camera turned back on three hours later. And what did it that time? After an extensive pause, Benny said, That so-called deer turning around and walking away. Where's that camera at exactly? The one it stared at? Daryl asked. About 200 yards from my place, maybe 100 from Esther's. That puts it at, what, a quarter mile from us? Daryl asked. Benny thought, then said, I'd say so. I'll give you another call if I see it again. I'd appreciate that, and we'll call you if we see anything here. The men hung up. Cassandra startled Daryl as he placed the phone back on the hook. She had been lingering just behind him, listening. Someone should be stationed at Esther's place, she said. That's where it went last time. What if it remembers and goes there again? But no one's living there now, Benny replied. So what if it goes there? Well, something must have drawn it back after so long, Cassandra argued. What if someone from Esther's family decided to move in without telling her? I mean, they must all think she's insane. Daryl tried to protest, but Cassandra cut him off. I'm going, Daryl. I won't go in the house. I won't even go near the yard. I'll only get close enough to see if anyone's brought a car there. Daryl wanted to tell Cassandra to stay, but years of experience told him there was nothing he could do to keep her from going. He resigned and told her to use caution and trust no one. Even if it's just old Benny you think you see, run straight home. He's afraid he won't be leaving the house, I don't think. Cassandra set out to check on Esther's property with a twenty-two rifle from their small arsenal. The light gun was all she could shoot with any accuracy. She had once been a much better shot after years of practice alongside Daryl, but those same years had taken such a toll on her body as to make it easily rattled by the boom and kick of a more powerful gun. Halfway between their property and Esther's abandoned one, Cassandra saw the last thing she had expected. Despite what she told Daryl, she did not expect to see anyone at Esther's house. It had simply been an excuse to go out and do something, anything but sit around and wait. She had certainly not expected to see Esther herself at the house. But yet, there she was, leaning over the banister of her small rear deck, staring into the forest. And there was her car, the roof barely showing over the top of the uncut grass around the driveway. Esther looked more pallid and frail than Cassandra remembered, but she supposed that aligned. The grief alone must have been enough to strip half a decade from Esther's already considerable life. Unsure if her longtime friend was even capable of seeing her, Cassandra waved. Esther waved back. Immediately, Esther turned toward the deck stairs and gingerly made her way down them. Cassandra quickened her step, eager to greet her lost friend and ask what had brought her back. She forgot her worry that someone moving into Esther's may have provoked the monster to return. Esther waded through her backyard with a slight limp. The gracefulness Cassandra remembered in her friend's gait had gone, replaced by an uneven, unsure sort of hobbling. The act of taking a single step appeared to cause her great pain. Oh, Esther, Cassandra called brightly. It's so good to see you. Esther made no reply as she continued forward. She appeared to siphon all of her energy into each step. She slowed, 
still a few yards away from Cassandra, then stopped. Wait there, I'll come to you, Cassandra yelled. She quickened her own step. Esther waved to her in reply as she hunched over to catch her breath. She didn't look up, even as Cassandra finally reached her. She stood beside her panting friend and placed a hand on her back, on the thin dress, which did little to disguise the frigid skin beneath. Cassandra yanked her hand back. Esther's back felt waxy, like hard-packed clay on a riverbank. It felt sickly, or dead. Esther suddenly snatched Cassandra's wrist and began to straighten up. Cassandra yanked her hand away from the zombie grip of the thing she had mistaken for her friend. When their eyes met, she wondered how she ever could have mistaken this hideous pretender for sweet Esther. It bore a vague resemblance in body and face, but its eyes were hollow pits of putrid malevolence. They looked hungry. Hungry, yet insatiable, as if hunger was their eternal curse. Back! Cassandra screamed. She herself took an obtuse step backward and slid the gun off her shoulder. The shapeshifter nimbly crossed the gap. Cassandra gripped her rifle firmly in both hands and gave the creature a shove. It wrapped its fingers around the weapon and held tight. As they played a grave yet brief game of of tug-of-war, Cassandra's furor was quickly replaced by vital terror. The monster, she realized, was toying with her. It could at any point strip her of the weapon she had so foolishly thought might provide her any protection. It pulled. She stumbled. It yanked. She recovered and tried to regain control. Again and again, this pattern continued as the women, one pretend and one real, physically argued over the gun. Cassandra realized with sudden dread that she had inadvertently been dragged to the edge of the forest. She looked into the face of her adversary and saw it had begun to change. The skin atop its head appeared to writhe like a horde of tiny insects as hairs which resembled Esther's crawled back into its head. Its nose retreated, and its mouth, a sinister grin, expanded outward toward the holes which had a moment before resembled human ears. There, at the edge of the forest, Cassandra finally surrendered the rifle. Hoping the creature couldn't or wouldn't use the gun, She released it, turned her back, and fled. Her own house was much too far for her to run to on her creaking knees and aching hips. She ran instead toward Esther's. She had a key to the front door still. Esther had left one for the Jollies and one for Benny in case of emergency. Cassandra didn't look back while she ran harder than she had run in over a decade. She couldn't run any faster. If it was going to catch her, and... and do whatever it did to people... She would rather be caught by surprise than suffer dooming anxiety before the inevitable end. The creature did not use the gun, nor had Cassandra really expected it to, but she was surprised it allowed her to reach Esther's front door unassailed. She knew the thing could have caught her easily, but it had let her escape. Why? She unlocked the door and went inside. A malignant stench infected her sinuses immediately upon entering the house. There was no time to check, but Cassandra knew the smell was her lost friend. Esther's phone was still hanging on the wall. Cassandra went to it, hoping Esther had somehow had it reconnected. Daryl waited for 20, then 30 minutes for Cassandra to return. When she had been gone for nearly three quarters of an hour, he called Benny. He asked if his wife had turned up at Benny's after checking on Esther's house, but Benny said he hadn't seen her. 
You let her out of the house with that thing lurking around, Benny accused. What was I supposed to do? Daryl asked. She's her own person, Benny, not a child I can order around. Well, her behavior says otherwise, said Benny. He said, I'll keep an eye out and call if she stops over. If she... Before Benny could finish, there was a knock on Daryl's door. He asked Benny to hold and went to the window. He saw Cassandra standing on the front porch, holding the twenty-two and looking sweaty and exhausted. Picking the phone back up, he told Benny Cassandra was back and that he had to go, then hung up. He stood behind the door and asked, Cassie? Oh, Daryl, thank God, she exclaimed, sounding winded. It was there, at Esther's. I saw it. It tried to trick me, but I realized what it was and I ran. Daryl was about to open the door to fold his wife into safety, but paused with the lock halfway turned. He asked, Why didn't you just come inside when you got here? Instantly, Cassandra replied, I had my keys out at Esther's, but when I saw the monster, I accidentally dropped them. You said you weren't going inside, Esther's. Daryl growled suspiciously. I know, I know, but once I got there... Daryl, you have to let me in. Please, it's still out here somewhere. Daryl was still suspicious, but he wouldn't be able to live with himself if his wife was taken by the monster right outside the door while he listened. Her flimsy story would not have been enough to convince him to open the door if she didn't also have the gun she had left with. He had never seen the shapeshifter recreate an object before. Without another word, he turned over the lock and opened the door. The thing wearing Cassandra's face pounced inside. Daryl barely had time to realize his mistake before his life came to a sudden, blood-washed end. Benny? It was Daryl's voice coming through the door. Benny grunted and went to the window. He looked out and saw his neighbor standing on the doormat outside. What are you doing here? Why didn't you call? He asked aggressively through the glass. I'm sorry, Daryl replied. I couldn't wait for Cassie any longer and decided to look for her. I didn't expect to end up here or I would have called first. Well, she's not here, so move on, Benny said. Benny, please. I've been out here looking for her for almost an hour. Can I just use your phone to call my house and see if she's back there? Maybe I missed her. You stay right there, Jolly. I'll call for you, Benny said. A moment later, he was listening to the Jolly's phone ring while he kept his eye on Daryl through the window. As the phone rang, a knock came at his back door. He thought he heard Cassandra's voice accompany it. Jolly, Benny called through the window. There was no answer on the phone. Is that your wife around back? I'm not sure, Daryl answered. I didn't see her come up here, unless... unless she came from the woods. Benny, usually calm and rational, now started to lose his grip. Now you listen, Jolly. I've got you here, and your wife back there, and I can't be sure either of you are who you say you are. Do you understand my position? Maybe you're both who you say, or maybe one of you wants to come in here and rip me apart. Why don't you both go on home? I'll be keeping my doors locked, thank you. Don't make me get my gun. Good lord, Benny, no need for that. There's a way you can know if it's Cassie back there, Daryl said. Benny asked, how? She took a gun with her, a Winchester twenty-two. Go look around back and see if she's got it. If she does, that's Cassie. Benny didn't answer, but went instead to the back door. It had a window in the top half which Benny had boarded up years ago. 
there was still a slit between the boards through which he could see through the window. He saw Cassandra Jolly standing out there. She looked tacky and pale, like she had just run for her life. And he might have believed she had if she'd been holding a Winchester 22. But Cassandra Jolly's hands were empty. Benny went straight to the front door and opened it as quietly as he could. He could tell Daryl was going to say something, probably thank him, but he raised a finger to his lips to silence the other man. He gestured for him to come in and closed the door. Once the door was closed, Benny whispered for Daryl to have a seat and stay out of sight. He then returned to the back door. Be gone, beast, he shouted through the boards. You'll receive no invitation here. No, Benny, it's me, Cassandra pled. She was, in truth, the real Cassandra. Please, you have to let me in. I just fought the creature off and I'm afraid it's after me now. I hid in Esther's house until it left, then came here. You're much closer to Esther's than we are. I won't believe your lies. Cassandra Jolly always takes the path through the woods. I guess you finally got her. No, Benny. Go away, he shouted definitively. I will not open any doors to you. He heard Cassandra break into sobs as she turned away and ran from the door. He watched through the slit until she was gone, then returned to where he had left Daryl in the living room. Only Daryl wasn't there. Jolly, Benny called out. She's gone. I sent her packing. Good. A hideous voice, nothing like Daryl Jolly's, came from behind and slightly above Benny. He turned in its direction and saw a distorted, pale beast clinging to the ceiling in the corner of the room. Before a scream could escape his lungs, the monster leapt from above and tore out Benny's throat. Cassandra was horrified to find the house empty when she returned. Daryl hadn't left any sort of note, but she guessed he had gone looking for her. This realization left her feeling sick with guilt. What if something terrible happened to her husband because she had been too stubborn and hard-headed to listen to him? What if that thing had tricked him as it had tricked her? What had he said to her the night before? That he would follow her voice even if he was standing over her cold, dead body? It had sounded so stupid and unreasonable to her then, but now it made her heart ache. What if that thing had lured him into the woods disguised as her? Her fears were abated when she glanced through the window and saw her lumbering husband crossing the yard. He looked beaten and worried. Eager to put him at ease, Cassandra ran outside. She ran directly into Daryl's arms. As she approached, he grinned. As he wrapped his arms around her, she felt how unnaturally cold they were. Daryl's grin continued to spread out to his ears. The wide grin. And the hollow, paralyzing eyes above it were the last thing Cassandra Jolly ever saw. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. If you want more creepy content, follow me on Instagram at The Warning Woods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the Warning Woods. Thank you for listening.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.